I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, a Spotify surge, an exclusive with the CFO on these blowout results and these recent job cuts coming up next. Then a Huawei halt. Biden considers cutting the Chinese chip maker off from U.S. suppliers. Later on, pretty good morning for GM. Record earnings and a stake in lithium driving that stock higher deep. We're going to get to all of that. Let's get a check first on the market stocks. They do look to rebound from yesterday's losses. Take a look right now. The Dow Industrials up about a quarter of one percent, but it's really the Nasdaq that is the outperformer here up. Just more than 1%. It's the EV makers, Lucid, Tesla, Rivian, leading the way there. The markets have so far posted a strong start to the year after the worst year for stocks since 2008. The Dow's up nearly 2%. The S&P on pace for its best month since 2019. And the Nasdaq, listen to this, it is up 9% this month alone, and that would make it the best month since July, John. And of course it's going to stay that way. Well, <laughs> we'll see. Today's move being driven by... A lot of earnings, nearly every sector this morning, from fast food to machinery and energy. While the industries might be different, inflation and pricing continue to dominate the conversation. Our Dom Chu has more. Dom? All right. So, John, as we talk about the reports that we've seen, the market reactions have been mixed, although we're off the worst levels of the session right now. But they've all been generally good earnings reports. If you take a look at McDonald's, which is down 2.5%, Caterpillar's down 4%, and ExxonMobil up 2% right now. Each of these companies earlier this morning reported both revenues and profits that were above analyst targets. So where is some of the negativity coming from? Well, it's part of the commentary and the outlook that has some investors perhaps a little bit worried. That's part of the story anyway. Let's start with one of the pieces coming out of the earnings call earlier this morning from one of these big companies, and that is McDonald's. If you take a look at McDonald's, Chris Chemchinsky, who is the uh, McDonald's CEO, is saying that this environment is going to continue to be challenging From a macro standpoint, we have to be very judicious and our franchisees have been very great about the pace of pricing while we're just making sure that we're keeping the customer engaged and coming into our restaurant. So you raise prices, but not enough to deter customers. That's a big theme there. Another one to watch for is on the heavy machinery side with Caterpillar, a big global bellwether for the global macro economy. James Umpleby, the CEO of Caterpillar, says our margins in 2022 were impacted by supply chain inefficiencies, ongoing inflationary pressures within manufacturing costs, and our conscious decision to continue to invest for profitable growth. Caterpillar, by the way, was one of the companies that could raise prices in a stronger demand environment for its goods. And then one other place to watch is in oil and gas. ExxonMobil, we saw Darren Woods on exclusively this morning on Squawk Box, but during the earnings conference call, Darren Woods also talked a little bit about the profit margins for the refinery or downstream business that they have at ExxonMobil. It's a very big one saying that I think the driver behind the refining margins that we've seen, heftier ones, as of late has been driven by the pandemic impacts of shutting down capacity and then not having that capacity available as demand has recovered. And John, this is what I will point out on the Exxon side of things. If you look, he goes on to say that some of those margins may become a little bit less hefty as refinery capacity gets expanded in places like the Middle East and Asia as well. So refining margins, 
inflation, everything else for pricing for the consumer, all very much in focus here for these earnings reports. And it comes down to this interplay between supply and demand and how much it's shifting as some of that supply loosens up, gets better versus where it was a year ago. And demand is actually slowing down. And perhaps we see that playing out in the likes of AMD and even Juniper as we look forward to their earnings. So this is a um, we've used the word transition a lot with regard to how companies are navigating this environment. What you have is an an attempt, in essence, to try to figure out an equilibrium right right now for what prices could be there that keep customers at least saying, hey, I will pay these higher prices, but I'm not going to pay much more than that. The, the, the one I thought was interesting, you mentioned those semiconductor stocks. It was UPS on the transport and logistics side. They made specific mention of the fact that Q4 shipping volumes were lower than people thought they were going to be but that they helped offset that by charging more. The revenue per parcel came in higher. So for a lot of these companies, and and even McDonald's said it in theirs, it is about trying to figure out how much pricing power do you have that makes sure that customers keep coming back for your stuff. Dom, the street was so worried about tech earnings this quarter. Of course, they make up the biggest part of the market. Um, But what's happened in the last few weeks? Microsoft was disappointing. Intel was certainly disappointing. But the market seems to have taken it in stride. What do you think that means for the upcoming uh, big tech later this week? So so it's it's maybe a preview and maybe some of the big tech traders and investors for this week when it comes to those three A's coming up on Thursday could very much be looking at what the precedent that was set for companies like Microsoft earlier. The the issue is going to be whether or not a lot of that move that we've seen has been kind of like the buying of the dip of all the underperformers from last year. And how much of it, by the way, is on the Fed and the macro that we have Mm -hmm. coming up this week as well, because the interest rate story and whether or not we have a slowing pace of interest rate hikes could play into the valuation side of things as well. So it's going to be tough. A lot of traders and investors are maybe not kind of going full bore into this until they see the results on the fundamental side of things. Right. Yeah, uh, some more data points to look for for sure, Dom. Thanks. Let's dive deeper into one of today's earnings movers. Look at Spotify. Shares up double digits this morning after delivering a top-line beat in the quarter. Monthly active users up 20% year-on-year. Our Julia Borston joins us this morning with a very special guest. Hey, Julia. Thanks so much, Carl. And that's right. I'm joined now by Paul Vogel, Spotify's CFO. Paul, thanks so much for joining us this morning on these better than expected results. I want to start off on those user numbers and subscriber numbers. You added 33 million users, more than anticipated. Your subscriber growth was also stronger than analysts had projected. Are you concerned about being able to keep up this type of growth given the economic climate that we're in? Yeah, well, first of all, thank, thanks for having me, and, and thanks for the nice intro. Um, yeah, we did. We had an exceptional quarter, um, as you said, a record-breaking quarter for us in terms of both Q4 results and overall 20, uh, 2022 results. And so um, 2022 is our best year ever in terms of monthly active users. We added 83 million uh, net additions, and we exited Russia in the year. So if you normalize for our exit in Russia, we actually added 88 million uh, new users in the year, which is, which is incredible. Um, on the subscriber side, also really strong. We had a 25 million Um, net additions for the full year, 27 million if you exclude Russia. So we feel really great about the full year of 2022. We feel great about how we exited uh, Q4. And we feel like we have a lot of momentum in our business. And so uh, we're very aware and conscious of of the macro and the uncertainty out there. But so far, so good in terms of how our growth has, uh, has persisted through it. 
Now, in terms of the environment ahead and the subscriber demand and your ability to increase prices, tell us what your plans are. I understand you've increased prices in a number of markets over the past two years. Going forward, where do you expect to be increasing prices and how much price elasticity do you think you have? Yeah, so um, we have increased prices in over 40 markets um, over the last uh, year or so um, around the world. Uh, we still think there is uh, elasticity. Uh, we believe we provide a tremendous amount of value. Uh, we've added, you know, we've gone from being a music service to a music and podcasting service, to a music podcasting and audiobook service. So we've added a lot of value into uh, what you get from Spotify. We definitely think there's pricing opportunity. We've talked about that opportunity coming up sometime in 2023. Um, there's obviously negotiations that go on with respect to how and when we raise prices, but we feel optimistic that that is something that's in our future. You just mentioned podcasts. I know you've been investing in some of these different spaces, but you also just announced you're cutting 6% of your staff and working to streamline. Should we anticipate any more cuts? Are there other areas where you feel like you need to be cutting back right now? Yeah, so for us, you know, 2023 is really about uh, executing against speed and efficiency. And so if you go back to our investor day in the mid, mid of, of 2022, and even into the, uh, when we exited 2021, we talked about 2022 being an investment year. It was a very significant investment year for us. Uh, we had a lot of headcount. We generated um, a lot of new initiatives and new products, and that will carry us through into 2023. So we feel like a lot of that setup from 2022 will help us in 2023. And 2023 really is about speed and efficiency. We feel but like we've been a company that's really been able to execute on the speed side in terms of product and innovation, and now it's being more efficient, both from a, a, um, from a spending's perspective. But some of these areas you've been investing in, whether it's podcasts or audiobooks, which is a relatively new area for you, at what point do you think they'll end up being accretive to your bottom line rather than just an area of investment? Yeah, so it's a great question. So we've talked about podcasts, it, um, and it's been a drag on our gross margins um, with negative gross profit uh, in this year. But we also said this would be the peak in terms of the negative impact that, that podcasts had on our business. And so we expect the podcast losses to continue to improve throughout 2023. We've talked about over the next uh, one to two years getting podcasts to break even and then profitability. And we actually think long term it will be accretive to our gross margin. So we believe we're, we're on track. We said 2022 20, would be the peak in terms of the negative impact. And we'll start to see the benefit of, the, of podcast moderating in 23 and then improving thereon. You know, Paul, I can't talk to you about music without asking about TikTok, which is increasingly a destination not just for con consuming music, but also for advertisers who want to be in an environment where a lot of music is played. What are you seeing in terms of com competition from TikTok, both in terms of engagement and in terms of ad dollars? Yeah, I would, I would take a step back and say we've seen competition um, for the ex all the existence of Spotify, right? We, we first came out, we've had to face, you know, Apple and Amazon and Google and some of the biggest um, you know, tech players out there in terms of, uh, of how we've had to compete. And we've done really well. Um, in fact, we've, we've talked about Q1, we hope to hit a half a billion users. So we've been able to really compete well against all the big guys. We take all of our competitors seriously. We think we have a great ad product. We think we have a great monetization potential for advertisers and creators. Um, and so they've obviously um, uh, are a, a formidable foe. They, they, they get a lot of attention. But for us, it's really focusing on our business and what we do well. We've competed against some of the biggest guys for a long period of time, and we feel really good about uh, how, we've, uh, how we've done against all of them. Well, I know you have a big um, Investor Day, big presentation coming up on March 8th in Los Angeles. We look forward to seeing what you announce there. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Great. Thanks so much for having me.
Now, still to come this hour on Tech Check, can AMD avoid the same fate as Intel while PC shipments fall? NVIDIA, the big winner in semiconductors so far this year, up nearly 30%. Plus, the Biden administration cracking down on China's, uh, well, exports to China's Huawei. We're going to have what that means for companies like Qualcomm. And then what to expect from meta results as advertising slowdown remains a concern. The stock is still cut in half over the past 12 months, despite a more than 20% surge this year. Tech Check is just getting started. Stay with us. The U.S. implementing more restrictions on exports to China. According to sources, the Biden administration is considering cutting off suppliers from China's Huawei on the grounds of national security. Our Kayla Tausche is in Washington and has more. Uh, Kayla, this isn't the first time that Huawei is in the crosshairs, but it is a key company because it has ties to the Communist Party and it's been here before. So what's the latest? It is certainly symbolic, Deirdre. The Biden administration is now weighing a full ban on U.S. tech companies supplying China's Huawei with key components, according to three sources briefed on the matter. It's a move seen as ramping up an action taken by the Trump administration and bolstering the Commerce Department's regulatory credibility on Capitol Hill. In 2019, you may remember the Commerce Department outlawed suppliers from doing business with Huawei unless they obtained a special license. At the time, it was seen as a death knell for Huawei, but license data obtained by the House Foreign Affairs Committee found that the U.S. was actually still approving quite a few licenses to do that business. But if the U.S. bans it, it's unclear whether those prior licenses would remain intact. Between November 2020 and April 2021, Commerce's Bureau of Industry and Security approved 69% of licenses for Huawei sales. That's about 61.4 million dollars in business. A third were returned with no action and only 1.2% of licenses were rejected according to a report from the House Foreign Services Committee. Now, that's just for a six-month period, and we don't have more current data, but today China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said it's gravely concerned and that China strongly opposes the U.S.'s unscrupulous and unjustified suppression of Chinese companies by stretching the concept of national security and abusing state power. Sources say the Biden administration has not made a final decision on the ban. Commerce says it consults with agencies and stakeholders but declined to comment on the company itself. Guys, back to you. You know, Kayla, one of the questions last time around was, would China retaliate? And there wasn't any sort of big retaliation against an American company, considering the significance, the symbolism of Huawei. And what's interesting, the company was actually able to do a pivot. Those export bans really, you know, really hurt the smartphone business, which was a large part of its revenue. But Huawei has actually been able to pivot. It's focusing on government contracts. It's actually built up a significant cloud business, infrastructure business. It's now the fifth largest in the world. And it still is the number one player in terms of telecom equipment gear. That's to build 5G networks around the world. So, Kayla, there's been this sort of soft power push out of Washington to get allied countries in the West to not buy that equipment. But in the developing world, Huawei continues to have success. Do you think that the Biden administration could put the pressure on with some of those countries that may be looking to use the network equipment? Well, un unless the 
price equation changes dramatically, it's unlikely that that will change. And certainly there is strength in numbers for the U.S. and the countries that it's been able to uh, bring on board to this strategy. Uh, But, you know, Dee, it's interesting. This is seen more as just a slight notch up in the policy that had been in place in the U.S. And it's seen more as a way for, uh, you know, the Commerce Department to avoid further subpoenas from now a Republican-controlled House Mm. with Republican chairs of these committees that govern a lot of these issues. So it remains to be seen whether it will be seen, despite the the statement that I just read from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, it remains to be seen, you know, how far China would take it in terms of retaliation or whether this is just seen as, as a slight notch up. And we're going to hear, you know, tough rhetoric from them. But I guess the implications also, we should note, are a little unclear because with the pivot that I just mentioned, Huawei is leaning on less advanced chips, not the kind that are put into the smartphones that let that business flourish for so many years. Kayla, thanks very much. Sure. Let's stick with chips. AMD in focus with the company set to report after the bell today. And this comes just a few days after a disastrous quarter for Intel. Christina Partsinevelis joins me on set for a look at those numbers. Christina, big question is, inventory, right? If you got a bunch of Intel chips and you're making PCs, do you still need to buy AMD if you're working that down? Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll get to that because we have a pricing point, too, and a pricing war that's going on. But AMD shares have actually, what, uh, climbed 11% just on the month, outperforming the S&P. But competitor Intel, like you mentioned, the brutal quarter means that AMD's earnings now are facing even more scrutiny. So Intel warned two things, two major things, that the data center market would contract in the first half of this year and the fact that their CPU inventory levels are still pretty high, and that's due to PC demand weakness which we know, we've talked about a lot. Uh, even one number in Q4, total PC shipments saw the largest quarterly decline ever, down 28%. So lower PC sales affect data center sales, which make up over a quarter of AMD's revenue. And we can show you just that breakdown in this revenue graphic in a second. But uh, And that's the uh, orange part you're seeing on your screen right there. But Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, or BMO, I should say, Bank of Montreal, as well as Credit Suisse analysts expect near-term weakness in data center sales to weigh on AMD's Q1 outlook, but the outlook could improve. And that seems to be the the consensus for the year. Uh, Why is that? Because AMD's PC inventory should normalize in Q1, maybe going into Q2. It seems consensus right now is flattish for gaming, where GPUs play a role. Remember, NVIDIA is pretty much the dominant player in that category. And then you've got growth in servers that remain a bright spot. And that's the point I think we're going to chat about right now. AMD continues to steal market share away from Intel. And data center numbers are still up for debate in terms of, you know, are AMD's numbers going to come down uh, and what are the price points of those servers going to be? And I think that's the biggest issue between both companies right now. Because from Microsoft, we sort of heard, and then from Intel, it sounds like that hyperscaler uh, growth, right? And by hyperscalers, we're talking AWS, we're talking Microsoft Azure, we're talking Google Cloud, maybe slowing down. They might be buying less equipment, which means they need fewer chips from the likes of Intel and AMD, but does AMD's kind of product advantage and the share gains counterbalance that enough to satisfy what investors are looking for? Well, the consensus on the street would say yes, because it seems AMD is still a stock favorite. However, the price point is a concern because that's going to impact gross margins. There was a note from Bernstein. They get downgraded AMD, and they said that AMD's client parts actually, the the price for those client parts declined just within two months of the launch. That's the steepest decline within the shortest amount of time just over the last few generations. And then DigiTimes, which is really great with some breaking news, they said that Intel is looking at dropping their CPU prices by 20%, according to their industry sources. So you have this price war that's going on, hurting margins, 
all at the same time, AMD is still trying to steal market share away from Intel. Will that be enough to offset the weakness in PC? Right. You got to keep those fabs running, right? So you got to sell some chips, but when your customers already have inventory, you can't sell them Which for a lot. Which is why the utilization yeah. rate in those fabs for Intel, well, a little weak. There we go. Thanks, Christina. Thanks. And don't miss AMD CEO Lisa Su tomorrow on Squawk on the Street, 9 a.m. Eastern. Carl? That's a big one. Uh, meantime, up next, it's one of the biggest gainers of this year. Paramount up more than 30% in 2023, but one firm says the run could come to an end. We'll talk to the analyst who says it's time to sell in a moment. Welcome back to Tech Check. Let's get to Paramount today. The stock's a big outperformer this year, as you may know, up 32%. But Macquarie out with a new note downgrading to underperform today. Says there are better places to look in the media space. Joining us this morning, the analyst behind that call, Macquarie's Tim Nolan. Tim, it's great to have you back. Uh, you do say, look, a high exposure to the ad market, but in a way it's a bit tactical because of uh, the year-to-date performance, right? Yes, uh, it's had a good run, you know, up 34%, I think it is as of yesterday, year to date, um, versus the S&P up, you know, mid single digits. So that's a nice run. Um, but I think we've still got some recessionary impacts on the numbers yet to be seen. You know, we'll have some advertising weakness in Q4, uh, certainly on the linear side. And we worry that that continues into Q1 and Q2 for all media companies. Um, but but uh, Paramount is perhaps most exposed amidst, amongst its media peers with about uh, 35% of revenues coming from advertising. So that's a near-term uh, headwind. Um, you've also got costs going up. So, you know, revenues down and costs up is not a good formula. Um, you've got, um, you know, the direct-to-consumer investment costs, um, as far as we know, going to peak yet in 2023. Um, and then you've got basically, um, you know, one of the more expensive stocks in the media group. It's trading above 10 times EV to EBITDA on our 2023 numbers. Uh, most of the peers, excluding Disney, are more in the seven times range. So I just think it's the wrong combination of um, of PL drivers and valuation. Right. You do. Um, I, I, yesterday we got the news of this Showtime Paramount Plus branding mashup. I just wonder what you think's behind that, and whether or not there are further cost cuts to come as a result. Yeah. Well, this is one reason we're not, you know, necessarily long-term bearish and why, is, as you said, it's something of a tactical call here. Um, you know, Paramount Plus and Showtime uh, announced yesterday, of course, right after our note went out, that there might be um, uh, a common, that there is a combination to come of some form of the two. I don't know if it's an outright merger, um, but at least the, the concept here is reduce some of the operating costs on the two separate services, combine some of the content, and therefore you can drive some more subscribers. So, you know, that could drive revenues up, uh, reduce some of the costs. So that's that's one of the positives that I think they have going for it into the new year, you know, maybe more into 2024 at a time when your ad market may be rebounding. So, you know, right. we also expect there may be some cost cuts to come uh, that the company's going to announce in their report in a couple of weeks' time. Um, so those could be some some positive offsets. Um, but still, we just think, you know, anytime you're doing that kind of an announcement, it's because your current situation isn't where you want it to be. So right. we're yeah, anxious the, on the nearer term. Uh, the the backish memo sort of hinted at that. There are some, though, Tim, who like to play the media M&A game and argue that steps like that make Paramount an even more attractive acquisition target. Is that fair? Um, clearly, that's, you know, that's another risk that we highlighted in our note, which is, you know, just sector consolidation. 
Um, you know, you already had uh, Viacom and CBS merging to form Paramount a few years ago. Um, it's had some mixed results since then. It's a very competitive space. It's all about streaming. There are some major, major, big time um, uh, streamers out there that Paramount is trying to compete against Paramount now with Showtime. Um, you've got the rise of the fast channels. Pluto TV is one of the larger ones on the market that, that Paramount owns. Um, so it has it has content, it has distribution. It doesn't quite have the scale of some of the of some of the larger players. And this is where the industry consolidation discussion may come about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All ahead of the upfronts, where it's going to get a lot more interesting in terms of where the ad market's going this year. Uh, Tim, interesting call. Appreciate you expanding on it. Thanks so much. Thank Tim you. Nolan and Macquarie. Up next, closer to a trough than a peak. Why one trader is betting on names like Micron and Microsoft to outperform this year. Plus, we'll have more on how to play Meta as they report later this week. M is the word of the day. Don't go away. Welcome back to Check Check. I'm Bertha Coombs. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Pulte Group shares are leading the S&P 500 with an 8% gain. Higher home prices help drive big beats on the top and bottom line. The strong results are outweighing slowing new orders and weak guidance on deliveries for Q1. Employment costs rose just 1% in the final three months of last year. It is the third straight quarterly slowdown in pay and benefits for U.S. workers. Now, the slower growth could help reassure the Federal Reserve that wage gains won't fuel higher inflation. In France, nationwide demonstrations and strikes protesting pension reform. Labor unions are seeking to get more than a million people into the streets. They oppose government plans to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. President Macron says the change is essential and his government has refused to negotiate on that issue. John, back over to you. Bertha, thanks. The market's now poised to close out a stellar start to the year. The S&P is on track for its best January since 2019. But the focus is on tomorrow's Fed meeting as well. Could it kill the momentum? Our next guest doesn't think so. He sees an end in sight for rate hikes, says tech is still under-owned for the new year. So how much higher can we climb? Joining us now, Wedbush Securities Managing Director and Head of Equity Trading, Sahak Manwellian. Sahak, good to have you. I'm nervous, though, about the Fed and what happens to growth throughout the year. We've had this slowdown in uh, PCs, even in cloud. But you say you can buy Micron here despite the chip inventory issues. Why? Hey, thank you, John. Yes, I mean, we like we like Micron. We've seen a lot of um, semis already print last week and this week. We saw Texas Instruments with a good enough number, Lamb. Lamb was fine. KLA Corp, uh, you know, they missed. They spoke about industry capacity. They spoke about weaker memory trends. And then NXP last night, um, you know, reported their guidance was okay. Auto demand strong um, or resilient. And, and they talk about uh, consumer and mobile demand somewhat softer. I think when we th think about Micron and where Micron is today, um, a, a lot, you know, Micron already reduced uh, DRAM and NAND. Uh, wafer starts to, to right-size supply uh, not too long ago. We think mm -hmm. the deterioration in, in memory conditions is, is well understood by, by the street. And more important to investors will be when the cyclical bottom is established 
you know, it's our view here that the industry is just closer to a trough uh, th than a peak. We think it Micron's like, improved positioning. It feels like, Sahak, though, we're, we're kind of teetering at this moment where we're looking to see if some of these industries are going to sort of stabilize themselves or take another fall down a flight of steps, right? I mean, the PC industry is going through this uh, recalibration of trying to chew through this inventory, and yet data center, even hyperscalers, perhaps seem to be slowing down. As you mentioned, autos, those seem to be strong, as we heard from GM this morning, but does some of this consumer weakness eventually bleed through? You think not. How much does the Fed commentary uh, play into whether investors agree with you this week? Yeah, John, there's, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces right now in the marketplace. And this has been quite a remarkable January to start. When we think about the Fed and 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 the Fed being in the latter stages of this hiking cycle, um, you know, it seem, seemingly there is some end in sight. So tomorrow, I think most importantly, or or for us, what will be maybe most interesting is, you know, what the Fed says about forward guidance and, and really, whether or not this conversation moves away from a cycle ceiling conversation and towards a cycle length or a cycle duration uh, conversation, which which could potentially be a, a, a blow or a headwind to to some of the markets anticipating second half cuts of maybe some 50 basis points or so. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But there's a lot of moving parts. We've seen treasuries uh, trending higher all month. We've seen better um, inflation numbers for sure. CPI, PPI, last Friday, the PC deflator was a little bit better, um, as well as last Friday, University of Michigan, inflation expectations lower. And then this morning, I think uh, somebody just mentioned right before I got on, the employment cost index, ECI came down a little bit. Um, so the pace of wage growth subsiding, we've seen ISM prices paid come in lower. Um, th these should be decent signs for the Fed. But again, we'll see if this conversation moves away from um, a cycle ceiling conversation and towards duration of this uh, cycle length. So, Sahak, if you see the Fed as approaching the end of its hiking cycle, what do you do with unprofitable tech here? Uh, we talk about how the Nasdaq has had a good start to the year, but you take a look at, for example, Kathy Wood's ARK ETF, um, one of the best starts to its year ever. Um, what do you do with these names? The fundamentals haven't changed much. You're still going into a softer economic backdrop, but if the Fed is nearing the end of its hiking cycle, does that make the case even more for them? It's a great question, Deidre, um, and, 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 and an important one. You know, the, the thin and, and depressed positioning coupled with excessive negative invest, investor sentiment was really responsible for much of the um, sector rotation and push higher inequities that we've seen play out this year. Uh, so last year, you know, all of these no profit, expensive tech, these things just all got crushed. Um, the unwind's been brutal. Um, one can take a look at the arc. Uh, the various ARC ETFs, which you just mentioned, um, we think, a, you know, a lot of the damage is done. And there's areas where with, within some of these software names that we start to like, MongoDB being one of them, uh, we like some of the cyber and security plays. Um, we think a lot of the the, the, the pain is, we, we think, in the rear view. Um, and, and we think some of these can be bought. Palo Alto, so, another one that we like here, and we think that can be bought here. So, um, yeah, the no-profit tech and the expensive tech, these things just got crushed last year. They've been on the forefront this year in this very nasty unwind mm -hmm. of sorts. 
Um, and so, so it'll be so much what more about investor, stocks. So, Hawk, what should an investor make of the strong move higher in risk assets overall? Bitcoin, Tesla, ARK, some of these. Na- I mean, sh- are we to believe then that this is justified because the, of the end of the hiking cycle or has some of that been overdone? John, I think some of it's overdone. A lot of it is justified. I think the justified portion of this move has been the extreme negative um, sentiment from investors in the street coming out of last year when we saw rates move um, as as aggressively as they did. As we now come to grips with uh, the latter stages of the Fed and its moves, people start to look through the rubble. Some of these things just got kicked in the teeth so hard, uh, deserve being bought. Others will probably continue to slide, and it'll be just a very tough and choppy year going forward with stock selection on the forefront for investors to try to pick out names that just got hit too hard and and, and to to our point uh, are closer to trough levels as opposed to peak levels. And and there's just a lot of pain within the group. But um, we think there's some decent buys out there. All right. Sahak Manwellian, thank you. Thank you. And after the break, lifted by lithium, GM surging this morning on the heels of results. We will tell you how that company is trying to improve its own supply chain when Tech Check returns in just a moment. Welcome back. General Motors with a beat on the top and the bottom lines. They also announced this investment in a lithium company as the EV price war ramps up. Our Phil LeBeau has a closer look at that this morning. Hey again, Phil. Hey, Carl, when you look at shares of GM up almost 8% today, two numbers stand out. First of all, they beat in the fourth quarter, earning 212 a share. The street was at a buck 69. And then their guidance for 2023, well above what analysts were expecting. They expect to earn six to seven dollars a share. The street is at 567 consensus. In regards to the EV and their EV outlook, Look, they said a few things today. One, no price cuts in response to Tesla. Two, they're ramping battery plants. One is already in operation in Northeast Ohio. And then there is the 9.9% stake that they have taken in Lithium Americas. So take a look at shares of Lithium Americas. Keep in mind that they're going to be developing a deposit, extracting lithium from this uh, deposit in Nevada. But that's not going to happen until 2026, though GM believes it ultimately will supply enough lithium for 1 million EVs annually. Why is this important? Well, you've got the tax credits that are going to be going into effect with regard to battery packs that GM will need. And also, it needs to secure the lithium if it's going to be able to catch up in terms of production and lowering costs with Tesla. That ultimately is where GM needs to go when it comes to EV production. It needs to get its costs as low as Tesla. And that's why this Lithium America deal is a big deal. If they can ramp this up in terms of production, Carl, uh, a lot of people are saying, look, it has a lot of potential here. A lot of things have to happen between now and 2026, but the potential is there. Uh, Phil, uh, Adam Jonas today, Morgan Stanley, writes about the early innings of uh, EV deflation. How does that square with GM's refusal to go along with the price cuts? And I would mention as well uh, Volkswagen, too, today. Well, both GM and Volkswagen, do they have a direct competitor to either the Model 3 or Model Y? I mean, those are the two main vehicles that the price cuts impact from Tesla. Yes, they cut the S and the X, but the 3 and the Y are the main areas. The most direct competitor to the Y 
you could argue really the only competitor in North America is the Mustang Mach-E. And that's the only model that Ford cut prices on. So that's where the price cut is taking place. Could we see other models ultimately have to cut uh, other EVs have uh, price cuts as well? Yeah, there's that's definitely uh, out there. I don't think anybody expects EV prices to continue to rise or stay as high as they are right now. But the real question is going to be what happens in that thirty-five to 45000 price range. That's really where the price battle is going to take place. Yeah, that's a great way to frame how we're all thinking about uh, price changes in the industry. There's a lot of different uh, tiers. Phil, thanks so much. Uh, Phil LeBeau. John? Coming up after the break, key metrics to watch when Meta reports later this week. Ad spend remains in focus, and so we're also watching Snap releasing results after markets close today. Those numbers could provide insights about what to expect from Meta. We're back in two. All eyes on Meta when the tech giant reports earnings tomorrow afternoon. The stock is up more than 20 percent since the start of the year after lackluster 2022. But the company still facing countless headwinds going into earnings, including pressure to build its ad business, competition from TikTok, of course, and its ability to cut costs as it ramps up the metaverse. Our next guest, though, remains bullish, saying the company has successfully navigated major transformations in the past and the organization is very resilient. Joining us now, Mighty Capital Managing Partner S.E. Mwadi, who was also former product leader at Facebook. Good morning. Thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. You were there during the mobile transition. You saw the stock fall to under 20 bucks. How is it different this time? And are you hopeful right now? Do you see green shoots, Facebook really transforming the business once again to focus more on that short form video? Well, you know, Facebook, like I said, is a very resilient organization. And they've gone through that transformation 15 years ago. I see them going through the same transformation right now. Now, what's happening is that there are two forces at play. One is um, the, the competition from TikTok. And Facebook's typical reaction is to buy their competitors. They bought Instagram. They bought WhatsApp. So really, they should buy TikTok. But regulators on both sides, right, in China and the U.S., may not allow that. So it might be getting in their way. Then the other challenges they have is they're making a bet on the metaverse, which I'm very bullish on. But in order for these massive platform plays to be successful, what you need is a killer device and a killer app. And right now, there is no killer device on the metaverse. So the, the holiday season may prove uh, that, that things will change. We may have Apple and Sony releasing, releasing amazing devices. But that remains hmm. to be seen. You're a product person and you work at Facebook and you don't think that the Oculus or Horizon Worlds are killer apps or devices? What's he doing um, then? Yes, Facebook is not a hardware company and it's a completely different culture. It's a completely different process. So I think the killer app is going to come from one of the major hardware players. And not, not Meta? Not Meta. Meta is going to come with the killer app but not with a killer So device. the reason to be bullish on Meta heading into this earnings season is for its legacy business, for its transition to reels, for the advertising. Is that right? It's not, you're not bullish on the future on its metaverse ambitions. I'm bullish on the future of Facebook as a great app, software company, okay. not hardware. I knew John would want to come in here. John. FC, <laughs> have you ever seen a company do what Meta is doing, spend tens of billions of dollars on something where there's no killer device or killer app? I, I have not. So that, that's why it remains to be seen. But on the other hand, a lot of these hardware players, whether it's Apple, Sony, Nintendo, are all working on killer devices. So the holiday season in 2023, I think, will be telling. 
Will, will Meta benefit from that if it's not them making the device or the killer app? I think so, because I think they need each other, right? A killer device will need a killer app, and Facebook and the metaverse is potentially one of the killer apps. Okay, something that investors are latching onto, maybe not the promise of the metaverse, but Facebook is also working on artificial intelligence, which plays into it. And there's been some evidence reported by the journal that their investment in AI is getting people more interested in Facebook again, and particularly Reels. Do you think that um, Facebook is a leader in the space as we talk about things like chat GPT and the promise of the TikTok algorithm? So I think that AI has a ton of promises and, and moves forward with leaps and bounds. Whether Facebook is one of the leaders in AI, I'm not sure. I don't see them be like a dominant player in AI. I think they're going to be a great player, but I don't think they're going to be a leading player. But you're bullish on Facebook, Meta, that you don't think they have a killer app, device, or transformative AI at the moment. That's correct. Okay. We'll see how it shapes up. SC, thanks very much for being with us today. Carl? Uh, Dee, if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Check out Apple today. City naming the stock a top China reopening pick, something Morgan Stanley said a few days ago. You can read more about that call on CNBC.com slash pro. Tech Check is back in a moment. Welcome back to Tech Check. New this morning, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt making a change in the way he approaches Washington. Eamon Javers is here with the exclusive details. Eamon. John, Eric Schmidt is joining a new outside commission here in Washington, D.C. This is a role he's played in the past. This time, Congress announcing at the end of December that it's forming a biotech commission and staffing that with Eric Schmidt and 11 other experts from outside the government uh, and from mem including members of Congress who are going to advise Congress on how to spend money, how to steer the industry going forward. So it's a crucial, high-powered role here in terms of biotech. We discovered, though, that Eric Schmidt holds investments in three biotech companies through a venture capital firm called First Spark Ventures. And when we contacted people close to Eric Schmidt about this, uh, they came back to us with an explanation that Schmidt is now going to donate the profits from those investments in First Spark Ventures to charity. We don't know exactly which charity he's going to donate those to. He's said to be making up his mind on where he's going to send that money. But in an effort to show, uh, an advisor says uh, that he joins these boards for the right reasons, Schmidt is going to donate profits from those biotech investments and others to charity in order to avoid any potential conflicts of interest. We talked to some experts here, though, who say that the way these outside commissions are set up particularly when they're overseen by Congress, allows for an enormous amount of potential conflict of interest, given that you've got people from industry with active roles in industry advising the government on how to shepherd that industry. So it's a question, John, uh, for Washington of how do you get outside expert opinion and input on these commissions without raising the, the specter of conflicts of interest? And here we know Eric Schmidt is now taking some steps to avoid that, John. And this isn't the first time, even in your great reporting, that this issue has come up of Eric Schmidt giving the government advice that there's the possibility he's able to profit from behind the scenes. Now, are there required disclosures? Does he have to substantiate the idea that he's donating these profits? Is it all of the profits or just some of them? 
Well, we don't know. I mean, he's not going to have to substantiate that he donated these profits. Uh, what we know is that a person close to Schmidt tells me that he's going to donate 100% of the profits from First Spark Ventures. That's the venture capital firm uh, where he was a co-founder uh, that has biotech investments, and he'll donate those to charity. He'll decide at the time there are any profits what charity that will be. So we'll see where that money ends up. Presumably some uh, good organization will benefit from that. But as you point out, uh, we reported back in October that Eric Schmidt was on the board of the Artificial Intelligence Commission here in Washington, D.C. And during the course of his tenure on that commission, uh, he made as many as 50 investments through uh, personal money and entities he controls and is part of uh, in artificial intelligence companies. That also raised the question of conflict of interest and ethics experts in Washington and said uh, they didn't think that was the right thing to do at the time. This time, Schmidt's going to approach this one a little bit differently, John. All right. Uh, disclosure issues around business ties and information in Washington yet again, uh, this time <laughs> not directly involving Congress. Uh, Eamon, thank you. Carl. You bet. Uh, guys, meantime, Snap is set to report earnings tonight after the bell. Company struggling to reaccelerate growth, though, with shares down over 60% in the last 12 months. Still, investors are hoping Snap can maintain its strong user growth from last quarter, looking to add 12, uh, 12 million daily active revenue growth, however, expected to slow significantly to just 0.5% for the quarter. There will be a sharp focus on ad revenue as the uh, broader pullback in spending from advertisers may signal what's to come for other names reporting this week, and those would include Meta and Alphabet. It's going to be key, guys, mm -hmm. as we know, sometimes yeah. on the heels of the snap print, uh, there tends to be a little volatility. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.